Welcome to the new era by Web3 Connect. We're helping you break barriers and build brands in Web3, the next generation of internet. Hi guys, welcome back to Web3, the new era. Today we're interviewing the botanist co-founder of MetaMountain, the parent company that owns MetaWanna, a cannabis-themed blockchain-based play-to-earn game. The botanist has spent the last four years in the legal cannabis industry, which was young, vibrant, had a great community, and had a lot of learning to be done, similar to the culture and atmosphere you'd find in a startup. When he found the NFT space, he noticed a lot of similarities in this and decided to use his prior experience in business to create something in Web3. Check out at Metawana Game on Twitter. They're minting on Thursday, April 14th. Don't miss it. Stick around if you want to hear about MetaMountain's mission to break barriers into crypto for people across the globe, challenges of recruiting in the Web3 space, and how to find a Web3 job when you may not have any relevant background experience. So let's get into the interview. Alrighty, today we have Botanist with us, the uh, co-founder of Meta Mountain. So I will go ahead and pass it over to you, Botanist, to tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Um, so a little bit about Meta Mountain and uh, our first project, Metawana. It's a blockchain game. It's on Solana. It's a play-to-earn game that combines two kind of interesting game elements. One is a farm simulator and the other is a battle game. And so we have some cool bridges and connections between those two games and, um, you know, are really hoping to build an ecosystem that is sustainable and rewarding for players in the long term. And, and you know, above all, uh, the one mission we set out to achieve was to make it really fun. You know, we saw a lot of games a year, two years ago in the space that, you know, didn't really have the, the full feature set that you'd see in a AAA game production. And we felt that was a, an area that we could come in and contribute and hopefully innovate on in the space. So we founded Meta Mountain as a kind of a launch pad for this project in particular and then potentially other projects in the future. But we've been uh, working on this Metawana game now for about eight months with a, a pretty sizable team up to about 40 individuals. So we're all in on the uh, you know Web3 space, particularly the Solana blockchain, and are really excited to bring a fun game to the community for everyone to play. And I'm stoked to hear that approach because so many games are coming out that are just total garbage right now or that that have barely started development. And they just they want all mm -hmm. these funds to raise something that might be good in the future. Dude, game development takes so long. It's, it's ridiculous. It's super difficult. And that was kind of how we, we got started in it was we saw a lot of projects that, you know, they, they set out with the best intentions. They didn't have any, you know, anything nefarious or, or, you know, rug pull desires behind the scenes. They set out and, you know, developing a good game is very expensive. It's a very costly endeavor. You need a lot of staff on board for something like that. And you need a lot of time. And so we saw a lot of these projects that set out, they had great roadmaps, they had great communities, they they did their NFT sale, they raised a lot of funds. And then they kind of at that point started to get into the, you know, uh, minute details of developing a game and realize the size of an undertaking like that. And we saw a couple of them, you know, missing those roadmap deadlines. And, um, you know, we thought to ourselves, you know, let's, let's take a little risk here and, you know, start developing the game before the mint. And so we've been in development since August of last year. And, you know, our mission has always been whenever we do have a mint, whenever we do ask the community to put their faith in us, you know, whether it's financially or from a time perspective, we want to have something to give them. So uh, we did our first mint in early March and we had a demo of the game that was available two days after that. And we've got another mint upcoming um, that's going to be on the, the 14th of April. And that's going to have the full game release uh, for the farming side right after that as well, um, you know, within a day or two. So we're very much of the uh, kind of old business mentality of take a risk, uh, you know, put out the capital, do the, do the 
labor on the back end and then go to your customers after that and ask if uh, you know it's something they want to be a part of. I really resonate with that. We're doing something similar with Web3 Connect in that, like you were saying, a lot of projects will kind of come into it, have their mint and not have anything ready and expect people to be willing to wait six to eight months until they receive a return on investment. And similar to yourself, we were looking to build out our website first and then, you know, have our mint and so that our holders are, are receiving that like immediate upfront value. So definitely resonate with that. You'd mentioned that Meta Mountain was kind of created as like a launch pad for Metawana and potentially other projects in the future. Are you thinking that's going to be a launch pad that other founders and other projects can use to launch their project? Or is it more of like a parent company for the projects that your team plans to launch? Yeah. So as of right now, it's more of a parent company. And, and you know, we, we've got a unique team that came in with a diverse set of things that they wanted to achieve in the space. You know, we all agreed on the game element first, and that seemed to be quite an undertaking in and of itself. And so we've aligned the entire business around being able to, to offer the best possible game and to support the community in, in every possible way. But, you know, one of our other founders, um, Stagger Lee, he came from microfinancing in Africa for the last seven, eight years. He was in high frequency currency exchange trading before that, which got him his introduction into blockchain, but one of the missions he set out for and something that we we figured a game would be a good use case for is just getting wallets into the hands of people in a whole bunch of places across the world who've never had access to the financial systems before. You know, we realized that blockchain is is a fantastic way to get people, you know, access to, to funding, financing, a whole different, a whole variety of financial tools they may not have had access to through the traditional financial systems. And so we set out with this higher mission. To, let's see how many people's hands we can get wallets into. We identified games as one of the easiest ways to do that. You know, if you're able to play a game and have some fun as you're, you know, maybe learning about the financial system, opening a wallet and getting your, your introduction to crypto, that's a fantastic avenue to start with. So that's why we wanted to go down the game route in future, kind of as that parent company approach, we're going to begin launching other initiatives that'll help drive that mission and some other missions that will come along across the way. The space is rapidly changing. And then I think it's it's funny to look back on the game we thought we would build in eight months versus now. So uh, tough to predict the future there, but we're really excited for Metawana to be the first in a, in a long list of awesome projects from the Meta Mountain team. But you know, obviously, we got we have to ace this first one and continue to, to fight through the, the game side of things and make sure we get that to a place that we're really happy with. No, 100%. And to maintain that like competitiveness in a game is so time consuming too. Not Absolutely. to mention like you won't even really know what's wrong with your game until you mass test it when everybody's yes. trying, when everyone's playing. Like beta testers are not going to catch everything by no means. They don't have the time to explore with it either, which is the crazy thing. Definitely um, not. But one thing about your approach like really, really resonates with me is how you're trying to get wallets into the hands of as many people as they can or as you can to kind of onboard them into whatever ecosystem that wallet happens to be on, right? And I guess for mm-hmm. us, it's Solana and Phantom's done a pretty good job with the kind of the user interface so far, making it friendly for people to kind of interact with their stuff. That's so important, man. And I wonder if you really want to reach the most amount of wallets possible, is it pay to play? Because I also know that um, one of your one of your mints was free, the Nugs Mint, right? So curious about that, like pay to play or is it like a free airdrop? What's the line there? Definitely. Yeah. So I'll give you a little background on the Nug pull, um, as, as we call it internally. So partner with Fractal, who's been an un- unbelievable launchpad to go with. Um, they're games focused. They're only on Solana, you know, co-founded by Justin Khan from Twitch. And they had a, a, just a really good and almost different model than I'd seen at the time. I mean, the the vetting process that you have to go through to be considered for their platform is um, extreme. They launched in January as of this month, I believe is as of the first, they had only done nine game launches. I think they had maybe a few more mints 
in there, but a very slow pace rollout. You know, they really take that time to, to market their projects, give feedback, understand, you know, where you're at in your development cycle. And, and they take a really thoughtful approach to how they partner with games and projects in general. And so, you know, we were partnering with them and we were, we were thinking about different ways that we could really reward our early founders, you know, the people who have who started with us and found us and stuck with us at a really crucial point in our development. And we also wanted to generate a little noise and, and give back to the community. And so we decided to market the Mint as a 0.42 Solana, which, um, you know, this was in the early days of Solana, aka three weeks ago when it was like $80. Um, but, you know, marketed as a 0.42 Solana Mint, you know, about 50 US to get in at the time, you know, a little bit below that. And so we had these users lining up ready to mint and we kind of pulled a fast one on them. We we didn't charge them for the mint. It was just the transaction fees. So it was kind of a stealthy free mint. And it was really funny to watch, you know, our, our Discord at the time was probably about 3,800 users. And so as the week was getting, you know, closer and closer to the mint, we started trending upwards and upwards and upwards. And then the free mint happened. And it was just kind of a bonanza throughout an entire weekend of people trying to get in, you know, people uh, immediately going to secondaries. And when all was said and done by the end of the weekend, you know, I think we were at about 7,100 Discord followers. So it was a pretty sizable jump. And one of the cool things about that was we, we brought a lot of new people into the ecosystem. We gave a lot of our early adopters and early founders of, uh, you know, this, this community rewards in a sense that they were able to mint for free and have, um, you know, a way to play in the game, you know, at a different pace than other folks who may not have NFTs, which is kind of going back to your other question about the, the pay to play element and kind of accessibility. You know, we have a free to play mode in the game. Accessibility is, is going to be key for us. We want to make sure that this game is accessible to people regardless of their wallet size. So we have a free to play element. It's going to be closer to tutorial, getting people the idea of how the game works, giving them a sense of some of the mechanics in game. We also have a, a starter box, as we call it. It's a low cost box that'll allow you to farm your way into to rewards later in the game, including into NUG NFTs, you know, through leveling up and through working and, you know, playing in the game. And so there's those two elements. And then there's also the, obviously, if you have a, a NUG from the Mint or if you bought one in the secondary market, you know, we have three different on-ramps for users to be introduced to the game and introduced to the ecosystem that, that fit really all wallet sizes. And so that just goes back to our core mission about accessibility. But to touch on your last point about, um, you know, pay to win, it's been really interesting to see how games have developed in this space. Not a lot of games in this space have the budgets of AAA games and those large titles that we've all, you know, grown up or seen playing for the last 30 years. So you have to try and figure out ways to, you know, continue to incentivize players to play. For us, we saw a game, we saw a lot of games were doing things well, but one game we really liked was, was Splinterlands. It's very much not a pay to win model in that sense, but what it is, is something that rewards players for continually playing, you know, for their engagement and, and doing it through a variety of cool ways that aren't just like a, you know, a very grinder, let's just click through the same three menus over and over again. And so we were, were trying to take a page out of their book where the game is balanced. It's accessible to all users. Um, you know, it's really strategy heavy. So your knowledge in the game is going to prevail over everything else. But there's a few different on-ramps that people can get into and, you know, they can earn rewards at different paces depending on what on-ramp they got into. So that's going to be kind of the approach there on the, the farming game. The battle game is going to be a very strategy heavy game. It's really going to come down to who can counter the other team the best, who's putting together the, you know, most balanced deck and who's really got the game strategy down to be able to prevail in the battle portion. So a couple of questions answered there. I know it's a long, long answer, but uh, that's, that's really what we're setting out to build in the space.
Very cool. Very cool. It seems like you all, like you and your team know your vision, like short and long term, you know what differentiates you from other projects. And really at the end of the day, you know how you're wanting to provide value to the end user, which is more than some projects can say. So it's really refreshing to hear that sort of just conviction and definitiveness around what you guys are looking to build. And you sound like you're well-versed in this space as well. Like how did you get into Web3? Like how long have you been in crypto and NFTs? And how did you sort of find yourself where you are now? Yeah. So I started in a very hobbyist perspective. You started to see the, the Ethereum's and the Bitcoins of the land in 2016 and um, began investing then in a very casual way, you know, kind of a, what is this? And so, you know, as I started to get a, a little bit more foundational knowledge about it, we kind of turned into last year, which was probably the biggest learning chunk for me, but um, would, would have started in January of last year. And so um, it was very much a, how are dApps, how is DeFi going to impact this? You know, I knew how a cryptocurrency worked per se, but not necessarily how the networks work. And so started to better understand and, you know, what are the use cases for this? Obviously, you started to see uh, NFTs come out. And I was like, okay, my first assumption was those are those are art. And then as I dug deeper, I was like, wow, there's a ton of utility behind these. And so it was very much an organic growth perspective. I've seen people talk about this and, and tweet it. You know, you can learn more on Twitter in a couple of weeks than you can in a four-year university for something like uh, like blockchain. And so... Dude, um, don't tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I did the four-year university thing too. Uh, they did not mention blockchain once. So at that time, um, you know, I, I should mention if it wasn't clear already that our game is a cannabis themed game. And so I actually spent the last four years in the legal cannabis industry in a few different markets, you know, Denver, I was up in San Francisco, and then I'm now down in Southern California. And what I loved about that space was it was very, it was very new at the time. When I got in, it was not a lot of businesses there. Um, you know, it was still in the early days it was pre California legalization when I was doing it in Colorado. And so I was in this industry that was young, it was, you know, vibrant, people were excited, it was a great community. And there was a lot of learning to be done. There was obviously a ton of research and ton of processes to be figured out and you know how to run a business that's this regulated in a new kind of cool in industry way. And all of that type of, you know, kind of startup experience I gained from there was what really drew me to this space. Um, you know, that was a frontier at the time, uh, you know, when I moved into it and felt that it was something that was pushing boundaries. And this is that on a whole new level, Web3 in general, we're pushing boundaries and we're laying the framework and foundation for an industry that's going to really start to take over more so than it already has and will be around for a very long time. This idea that if I was in a traditional business role, it's, you know, one day is a day. If you're in Web3, it's one minute is a day. And so that it was that kind of pace that I got uh, accustomed to and, and became a huge fan of. And it just threw me headfirst into the, the Web3 world. You bring up a good point around kind of like gatekeeping knowledge on blockchain, crypto, NFTs. Like these concepts aren't taught in schools, at least when I was in college, it was not taught. Can you talk a little bit about how you sort of taught yourself from the ground up? Absolutely. It came down to a couple of different things. My background in school was in economics. And so I was very fascinated with the uh, economics of games and started to really heavily research, you know, coming from the economics side, it's like, how how is there reward mechanisms within games and, and even in, in, you know, crypto in general that are, you know, let's say inflationary, deflationary, how do you understand that, you know, you can build a project that actually has utility and isn't just from the ground up, you know, somebody paying more for what somebody bought the day before for nothing, no other reason than speculation. And so I dove headfirst into a lot of podcasts, follow a lot of people on Twitter and started really joining discords on a regular basis. And there's a lot of really intelligent minds out in this space. One of them that, that we've been fortunate enough to partner with is this group called Novik. Novik does deconstructions of Axie, Zedrun, all these major games and, you know, have some real intelligent game designers on staff and have partnered with the biggest projects in the 
space. And so they offered these like, you know, anywhere from 10 to 25 page deconstructions. And so I was just burying myself in that really analytical approach um, that, that got me a good knowledge base for particularly where we're at in the game space. Um, when it came to general knowledge, there was so much stuff. It's almost daunting at the beginning to, to try and learn how all of this works, but it was really just an inundation across all channels, whether it was an interesting thread on Twitter that sparked interest in a, you know, one keyword or one buzzword that I would go down a rabbit hole researching. And then, you know, the, the biggest thing I would say that's been so helpful is um, the peer to peer connections in this. I mean, something like discord and, and Twitter, but particularly discord gives you a platform where you can come into these communities, you can ask these questions to people, um, you can better understand them. There's really no stupid questions in an industry that's this new. And so after lurking for a while on discords and hiding and saying, Oh, should I even say anything? Oh, am I able to say anything? And finally making that step to try and reach out to people and better understand it. I mean, there's been some really awesome people that have taught me a ton. Hopefully I've taught them something. And it's been a really great community to be a part of. So to boil down all of that, I would say just using those tools of, of, you know, constant research, discord, Twitter, don't be afraid to get into those communities and just ask people. I mean, there's people with a million takes on everything. There's a lot of different ways to, to, to skin the cat as they say. And this has been a very, very welcoming and, and exciting community to be a part of. So I'm very thankful that people have gone out of their way to explain those things to me. I appreciate how you brought up the point of there's no stupid questions in a place that is so new. And I think one of the things we're looking to achieve with Web3 Connect is creating that safe environment for both experts, but also new joiners alike to feel comfortable having conversations and asking questions and learning. Because I know when you first get into the space, at least for me, it was intimidating. It was kind of like information overload, right? It's like, I don't really know where to start. I'm still learning all these things. I don't want to sound dumb. So it's hard to find the right community that is welcoming like that and allows you sure. to ask those questions and learn as you go. Um, but luckily, there's a lot of people in this space who are willing to help people onboard in that way. Are you doing this full time or do you have like a day job as well? This is the full-time job and, you know, to say it would be five days a week, 40 hours a, a week would be very much a short selling that. It, it's permeated into every hour of, of every day and it's been an extreme ride doing that. And we've got some awesome team members as well who, you know, of the 40 folks that we have on board, we have some that are in a, you know, legal capacity putting in time where it's needed. But as far as full-time employees now at this point, I think we're at about 2022. So we've got a, a big team. Um, it's no small undertaking to get this. Our development partners is a company called Double Coconut. They were one of the development teams that worked on Splinterlands. They've got 20 years of game development experience. They have employees who've worked at Blizzard and 2K and EA and all these major games. And so we have a lot of people who are all in on this project top to bottom in terms of development and building and really putting this into a place where it's sustainable and fun. As you know, in the space, there's a lot of people who can come in and help out in short capacities. So for anybody that's like interested in getting into the space job-wise, there's a million things you can do there are two hours a week. There's a ton of things you can do there are 40 hours a week. Um, unfortunately, there's not like a centralized, there's no indeed.com doesn't do justice to the amount of opportunities there in the space. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. I know I've used it a few times. It's interesting to see the volume of resumes I get now in blockchain versus in cannabis. Cannabis was, you know, a thousand resumes in an hour and blockchain is, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people would respond with a question mark if they gave you that feature, but it's a fantastic place to come in. You know, there's a million skill sets that are needed. I mean, I know for our side, we have every kind of developer, blockchain analysts, and we have economists, we have game designers, game developers, we have marketing folks, we have customer service folks. So there's really no shortage of job opportunities out there. And there's a lot of 
projects that just need a couple hours a week if you want to dip your toes in the water. So I think it's a really welcoming space there. Nobody expects you to know everything coming in, but there's a lot of really cool opportunities that have varying time commitments and, and investment from a personal side of things that make it a really accessible space for a lot of people. That's a beautifully said. And I know you guys are hiring like crazy. Can you talk about like what you're looking for in these hires? Because for example, I always have this angle that you should double down on whatever your interest, whatever your particular niche is. And to that extent, what if I just love the economics, but I don't have an economics degree, I'd be a great fit to do the tokenomics work or at least like consult and look at and try to help improve it and do case studies of of other ones. Mm -hmm. Is there really a streamlined way that the average person can take their interest and turn that into value added at a job? For sure. And that's funny, you know, coming from cannabis, one of the, the first year and a half, I worked at a staffing and recruiting firm. So getting people from the ground floor into an industry that, that may seem daunting, that has a lot of rules, has a lot of nuances that you may not be knowledgeable about. That's something that, that I've spent a lot of my career doing. And so for us internally, you know, I can, I think I could share a little about our story that'll help shift that narrative is, you know, we started off as a very small team and we built it out in a variety of ways. And one of the most interesting ways we've done it and, pr- and probably the most valuable so far has been folks that just came into our discord that we've hired. I think we've hired about five or six people just out of the discord at this point. And they were people who showed an interest in the community. You know, we were able to gauge their their involvement. They, it was something they cared about. And, you know, as, as I know from just in my time in the professional world, if you have that passion and that's something that you go home from your other job and want to spend time doing, I mean, it, it makes life immensely easier to teach somebody like that. And a lot of these concepts are just that, you know, they're concepts that can be understood and can be learned on a quicker timeline than a lot of people may think from the outside, but there's a lot of ways to get in, whether you just are good with people, you know, if that's one of your skills and you want to come in as a community manager. I mean, I know that we've hired a bunch of people who have done that. I've talked to a lot of other project owners. That's what they've done. We've had people from our discord that reach out and say, Hey, you know, I'm a graphic designer. It's just a hobby I have. And we're like, okay, cool. I think there's a lot of overlap that we can have here, whether it's just creating a Twitter post photo that they can now, you know, jump in and we can use that versus going all the way to creating the entire NFT collection. And so there's a lot of different avenues that you can get into. And I think that the first mistake that somebody, a prospective employee would have is to be afraid that their experience isn't going to match up with what's in that, you know, job description or what's in that need. If you really put yourself out there with those skill sets, I mean, a lot of these needs that we had, we didn't even register as, oh, we're hiring for, let's say a admin for the Vietnamese channel. As we started to have followings that were growing internationally, we were like, oh, anybody speak this language? And so we've been hiring people in who can speak different languages, can connect with people who can, you know, even down to the people who pop in a couple hours a week that can manage um, some inbounds or help guide community members to the right place. There's a lot of awesome ways to get involved. And a team member we hired was an engineer. He was an uh, oil and petroleum engineer. And he saying, hey, you know, I'm not really excited about this job anymore. Do you guys have anything here for me? And so we started him off on some small different projects, breaking down a couple of different timelines of how games have operated, things from their mint to what their marketing looked like to their growth stuff that was pretty much outside of the engineering realm as much as you could possibly be and was really done with a lot of Google research. And he's been an invaluable asset to us. He's learned quite a bit in this time and has, has really continued to add value in a whole bunch of different ways. And all it took was him taking a leap and saying, you know, my skill set is engineering. But that being said, I'd love to do some more research for you guys and see if we can put this together. And he did it and it's been fantastic. So I just can't emphasize that enough. Like take that risk, put yourself out there. If the first person that you said that to says, hey, we're, we're not hiring for that particular need, there's a million projects out there and that skill set and that passion will shine through without a doubt.
I couldn't agree more. I, I love that you say that. And I love how accessible all of this really starts to become too. It's freaking beautiful, honestly. Um, yeah. I do wonder in the recruitment process, when you're trying to filter out, should we hire or not? What are some things you're looking for? What are some Absolutely. things that individuals can do to kind of position themselves better? I mean, your resume can only be so extensive, but Absolutely. if you if you've written a couple Twitter posts or Medium articles, for example, you're better positioned. Can you touch on what you're looking for? Definitely. So one thing that I, I always love doing this and, you know, it's interesting because as somebody who didn't do their homework growing up and in school, it's funny to, to ask people to do it themselves. But when I have these interviews, you know, the first interview is, do I want to work with this person? Do I want to sit across this person? Do they feel like they're interested in the project? Do they care about what we have to say? Checking those boxes of, is that energy there for what we're trying to build together as a team? And then the next step that I would always do is I always keep it open-ended. And this has been so much more valuable to me than a resume is what are your passions in Web3? What have you seen so far? Are there other things that you've researched to date? Just really picking their brain about, you've obviously found us, whether that was through a job post or through a discord. How did you get there? What was your decision-making process that led you to say, I want to apply to this particular role? And that's usually when you can pull interests out of people. You know, we've had people that talk about, you know, I'm very interested in the, the smart contract auditing element of this stuff. It's something that I've heard about. I'm not a coder, but I'm very interested in what this looks like. And so they start to develop these passions there, you know, things like down to the graphic designers or someone who's just been an artist and says that, you know, they this is something that they want to try their hand at. And as I get that list of from people, and for some people, it's 10 sentences. For some people, it's, you know, exhaustive, really long emails. But I start to see where have you taken the initiative in your own life to research this wild world that we're all building together? And how can we apply that into the game? Because there's a, definitely a lack of particular skills in this space, um, because it doesn't have the funding and the attention that a lot of other, you know, traditional spaces have, we don't necessarily have all the skill sets we need. And so it's a great opportunity for people to learn and to fall into those skills skill categories. And a lot of these folks that uh, will come in and put those kind of applications in, you know, I see where their passions are and I do my best to put them in a place where they can pursue those. Because if I put them in a place where they can't pursue that passion, it's going to do them a disservice. It's going to do me a disservice and whatever ultimate goal we're trying to reach, we won't get there. And so it's really important to figure out where those passions are and just trust that they're going to run with it. If in that first or second interview, you've built that trust, you, you know, you trust the person you're across from, you know, they're going to fit in well to the current team you have. If you could just send them on a mission, to develop their passion even further, you're going to be really pleased and that person's going to be really successful with the output and contributions they're able to make. So for us, that's my biggest thing is that middle kind of homework assignment between interview one and two of how did you find yourself applying to a job in Web3? What are your passions and what do you really want to pursue there? So I'm now that terrible teacher giving people homework assignments that I never wanted growing up, but it's been a really invaluable mechanic that we've used and it's really helped us gauge what that person wants outside of the sometimes, you know, buttoned up, versions that either I put on or that person puts on in the interview. It's weird to watch how the job market is kind of changing right in front of us, especially how you kind of lean into the candidate's interest and what they're passionate about, right? Because I, I think back to how Elon Musk considers his hire, or at least what he's mentioned on these short YouTube clips, whatever, mm -hmm. um, on how he hires people for Tesla. And he says, get a feel for what they're into and ask them about the hardest problems that they've solved. He's mentioned a sentiment that I think is becoming more common kind of in the global marketplace, which is yes. like your degree is only so valuable. Like, what have you done? What experience yep. do you have? What can you speak to? Right. Um, Absolutely. And the fact that you're doubling down on that in these kind of recruitment, I don't, I don't know if you'd call them cycles, but as you recruit for people and kind of figure out what they're into and then just put them in that area and see what they do and obviously give them the resources, but that makes way more sense than the way it's currently it's, structured. So it's so refreshing to hear that. 
Yeah. You know, I learned this the hard way. My first job out of college was working for this cannabis recruiting firm. And it was a startup. It was eight people at the time. And they were like, okay, you know, we can start you as a recruiter so you can start to learn the business. And I realized almost immediately that I was an awful recruiter. Trying to keep track and really listen wasn't a skill that I had acquired um, at that time. And so um, I was very much hearing what I wanted to hear. And jobs that I was hiring people for were not easy jobs. I mean, they were harvest jobs and trimming jobs and, and really labor heavy jobs. And you know, we were coming into backfill folks for different positions when companies needed to scale up really quickly for their harvest. So you have this perfect storm of I'm trying to get people into a role. The company wants people as fast as possible. And I don't have the recruiting skills at the time to weed out the folks who may not be accustomed or know the full necessary skills and, and you know, the, the weight it carries on you to do those kinds of roles. And so I had a very rude awakening in that first three months where I was talking to somebody, you know, they said they'd take the position and then I'd have 10 employees show up to a job site on a Monday morning and we'd have three of them show up. And it took like three to four months of consistently making that mistake. And then a couple of really important mentors that came in and said, you have to make them want it a little bit. And I realized that you can't just say yes to everybody on the phone um, just to try and hit a quota. And that was when I started to realize, okay, if you make them want it a little bit and they show that extra step of, I'll take this step, I'll do that extra research, you know, I'll jump in and jump through that extra hoop, let's say, then those were always the employees that stuck around and stayed. And that was when I started to really see, you know, a fill rate go from 40 to 50% up to 90 and a hundred percent. And I've tried to take that with me when I'm hiring anybody into really any business is if I find out what your passion is and I make you jump through that hoop and I get to know exactly what you're looking for out of this role, then I can tell you honestly, if it's going to be a fit or if it's not going to be a fit, but the nature of web three and this type of project we're running, you know, we have so many needs across the board that it's very easy to slot a passionate person into an area that makes sense for them. So it, it didn't come without a lot of trials and coming out, you know, lost clients in my old world of cannabis, but it was a very, very important lesson to learn that you have to find the people who really want it. And if you do that, you'll be rewarded endlessly for the long term. And I guess the question then is, how do you find the people who really want it, right? Like, I feel like in the Web3 space, it's so mm -hmm. hard to find resources, let alone quality talent yes. with good work ethic, just because we don't have the tools like LinkedIn, Fiverr, Upwork that 100%. like are currently in Web2. So I guess I'm curious, like where you mentioned you have around 20 full-time employees and yeah, like around 40 total. Like, where did you source your team members? Like, how did you yes. find quality talent? Great question. I know that we have a, a top tier team here and I can explain how we built those. But even now when we're hiring for a variety of roles, um, it's very difficult. There's not a you know singular source that you can go find. You have to do a little digging, a little mining on your end to try and figure out where these people may be and entice them in a way to, to join your project, whether that's pulling them away from another opportunity they have in their life, or if it's you know figuring out that they have a hidden passion that they haven't been using or monetizing that you might be able to find a home for in your project. And so with our team here, we built it in a couple ways. For starters, our development partner, Double Coconut, has been around for 20 years. So they've been doing this for a very, very long time. And so we started to bring a lot of their folks in-house and, and you know dedicate them exclusively to marijuana. So there's been a professional partnership element that's been very helpful. The other element that's also been fantastic is we see a lot of, you know, some of our economic consultants, we have a team of it's about two economists and three game economists. So it's about five total economists on staff. And we started finding them by listening to podcasts and looking at Twitter threads that we saw that were, you know, amazingly well 
put together and very in depth and just doing our best to try and get a contact for that person to reach out to their email, to figure out what their Twitter is, DM them there, and then bring them in. And so what that led to was how we got a ton of our help and consultants so far to date. And those folks were actually able to provide recommendations for other people in the space that they've met or encountered that were able to come in. So it's very much a networking crowdsourcing method right now, which is funny because that's like reminiscent of web one. So it's a very difficult process to try and find that talent, but it is there. And so when you start going out and looking for people, you know, I would say the biggest thing that took me by surprise was Indeed doesn't work that well. We found two great people from Indeed, uh, but we've had more job posts than I can count that really never produced the type of skill sets we were looking for. And those are very particular skill sets really within the game development space. And so those traditional methods don't work as well. But what was a big surprise to us was going into discords and seeing people offer their services to let's say another project and then DMing them and saying, oh, wow, this is somebody we could absolutely use here. That was a huge one. Obviously hiring within the community, you know, as you build your community and reach scale, you're going to reach more and more people with diverse backgrounds and diverse skill sets. And not being afraid to tap into that community has been extremely helpful for us to get a lot of different skill sets in and, and bridge some gaps that we have internally. And the last one I would say is, is really the, I, I don't want to call it Twitter thread stalking, but a couple of the people that we've met so far that have made a huge impact on our game were via introductions or via us finding people on Twitter who wrote really interesting things, either identifying or solving a problem that we were trying to solve and then reaching out to them directly. And in many cases, if those folks weren't available, they had people that could assist. It's a weird hiring dynamic, um, one that I'm still getting accustomed to myself, but the, the folks that you're looking for are definitely out there. Yeah, it's funny how Twitter has become such an integral part of, of Web3. Because I remember back in, yes. what was it, maybe like 2013, I like totally deleted my Twitter because I was like, this app this, this app is lame. Yep. I don't want to be on this social media. And now it's like, it's the only one I use. <laughs> so. Yep. It, say I'm with you on that. I had I had a, a Twitter hiatus that was, you know, oh, coming up on a decade if I had made it so next <laughs> year. But uh, yeah, I, you know, oh, started one up when this project started. And for hunting resources, it's been a great knowledge and learning tool. There's a lot of muck on there, but it is an invaluable asset when used right. And so as a founder, like, and I've talked about this in other episodes of the pod where I really view NFT projects and projects in the Web3 space as startups, as tech startups, yes. that's really what they are. And as a founder of a tech startup, I'm sure you have to have your hands in everything, or at least Absolutely. maybe towards the beginning, right before you had built out that team of 40 plus resources. Can you walk us through like what an average day in the life looks like for you as a project founder? Yes, I'm starting to wish there was some sense of consistency there. But thankfully, my work experience had been in startups to know that you don't get that, that consistency you're hoping for. Didn't sign up for a nine to five for a reason. But I like to think that our team is very involved at every level. So for me, we built this heavily on community feedback. A lot of things around, you know, how do we do the mint? When do we launch the game? What does the roadmap look like? Very focused on our community. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time in that discord. First thing I check every time when I wake up, answering concerns, complaints, we're at about 82 hundred folks these days, but I'm still one of the most uh, avid posters in there to make sure that things are going well, to look for potential holes, to take community feedback into account. We're building this ecosystem for all of us. We need to have a very close ear to the ground on that. Obviously, we have a lot of internal meetings that are managing these different teams. As you kind of get into the hiring process, you realize that there's some areas that make sense to outsource to a small team, and there's some areas that make sense to bring in house.
house. And so we've got a couple different teams from the economics to the game side to um, some of the graphic design that require different circles to be run simultaneously. And so that's where a lot of my morning and my midday goes. The afternoons is a big one for me. This was a tip that somebody that a few people gave me in the early phases, but I didn't realize how valuable it was until the last month and a half. And that's partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. I spend a large chunk of my time reaching out to other projects in the space that I see that are, you know, has some crossover, doing things that I like, I'm very interested in, reaching out. I've seen so many projects that have great tools that we might be able to use and bring in-house. And so from that all the way to what's another game we want to partner with to, you know, increase our, our social presence. And so a lot of what I'm doing and focusing on and really where I think we see the most value add from an external perspective is going and finding those partnerships, discussing different ways that we can create a symbiotic relationship. And a big one for me is also figuring out how we don't just make this like a, oh, here's a whitelist giveaway for next week. You know, we want to have a long roadmap of partnerships and capabilities that we can lean on each other for. And so that's really the biggest three things that I spend my time doing. Usually evenings, I would say the last month of evenings has been very much documenting um, new plans. You know, I make almost all the announcements in our Discord as well. So documenting what announcements we make, updating roadmaps, updating the white paper, um, and building out the new game mechanics. And so that's what a standard week would look like for me. I would say sprinkled in there are three separate two-hour meetings with our game development team to just ideate on the game itself, whether that's economic balancing, um, whether it's inflationary or deflationary mechanics, whether it's what a user does at level five. So there's a lot of different areas being pulled in and such as the life of a startup. But I think it's really important for the community to see that everyone on the team is really involved in the project and really cares about its future going forward. So I wish there was a standard schedule. That's probably as close as I can get to one, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this. And as I said, there's a million areas that we need help and additional staff in. And so sometimes you got to roll up your sleeves and, and jump in and do it yourself. Yeah. And when you have so many different things that you have to be balancing all at the same time, I mean, dude, I don't know how you balance it. I mean, it's, it's not yeah. a lot of sleep. I'll be honest, <laughs> but it's uh, like this weird combination of the most stress and fun I've ever had at one time. And I, I remember seeing a couple like psych things where you can like mentally shift your, your stress as like kind of good angst, I guess, or like a good form of like yes. energy to, to kind of channel yes. into your work and whatnot. hundred uh, percent. Draw the, the line in the sand for some personal well-being time. You know, that's an important uh, balance. I'm still fighting my way through now, but it's getting better. That's for sure. I do want to ask you, I mean, I'm sure you've seen so many different areas of project development, community management and whatnot. Are, are there any like problems that you've worked through that really strike you as just having taught you so many lessons or so many things that you've ended up growing from as a result of going through whatever that problem was? Can you touch on that? Absolutely. That's a uh, timely reference. So one thing I think that was super, a huge learning moment for me. And, and, you know, like I said, we're, we're very community focused. I think it's important to touch on the fact that we're building a DAO and not a DAO in the sense that everyone just throws the acronym around a DAO where the community will own the game. I mean, there is a point in time that is going to come up when we've reached sufficient decentralization and the game is hopefully grown enough where the entire meta mountain team will be taking a back seat and just following the orders of the community from what feels features do we want developed? What are we spending potentially on this next six month, eight month, 10 month period? So we are very aware that the goal for us is to give up the entire project to this community so that they can direct the future of it. You know, obviously there's a lot of stuff that has to come in there. You know, we have to write a quote constitution in a sense of this DAO and help support the DAO and whatever decisions it makes to get those guiding and founding principles together and create mechanisms for people to vote. But we set out with this mission that we're not going to be a lot of these other games that have a DAO that are, you know, they put the words out there, they say, 
say we're a DAO, but they have no actual interest in giving up any control of the game to their community. And so that's something that we plan to, to turn on our head. And what that means is that we have to stay very close to the community. And one thing that we did, you know, obviously the Nug pull was a huge surprise. It's, it was fantastic. That being said, developing a game is very expensive. So the revenue from the first mint was zero, which means that, you know, we were now in a place where, okay, you know, we've self-funded it to this point, but we do need to look to get revenue um, to continue to grow the game at this pace and scale that we want to grow it at. And so we announced about a week and a half ago, our second mint details. Now, I think a lot of people in a lot of different communities think that some of these decisions will come lightly. I mean, when you think about what it takes to choose a mint price and choose a date, for us, it's everything from financial modeling top to bottom. It's working with the graphics team to create all the graphics for this. It's crafting the announcements. It's working with the launch partner to make sure that it fits within their schedule and um, you know works within the agreements that you've previously set up. So it's not like any of these decisions were rushed. But what we had happen was we announced a mint price of two Solana and we had built these plans for when Solana was $85. As we put all of that information together and started the wheels in motion of this announcement and you know planned all these announcements and sent them out, Solana went on a bull run that we haven't seen in months. So what ended up happening was accessibility is a core part of our mission. And so that element of it fell by the wayside, just given the scope of the ecosystem, given you know how long some of these decisions take to actually get set in stone. And so we were in this place where we had a lot of community members that were saying, hey guys, you know, we're really thankful for what you've done. You know, I either got some NFTs or joined in the secondary market, but I'm really looking forward to the second minute and I'm now priced out. And to me, that was a huge mistake that we made on our end. We chatted with the community. We told them, guys, we hear your complaints. This is something that we didn't want to be down the route of pricing people out. And so we went back to the drawing board. We worked with our launch partner. We worked with the finance side of things and we put together a new proposed price and got all of the wheels together, got everything in motion for that. And three days later, we were able to turn around kind of a mint revised bill. We added some more information to the white paper so that everybody could see the full scope of what we've got planned for the next year. We lowered our mint price to 1.25 for the community whitelist to really reflect that bull run in Solana that had happened. And, you know, we told the community guys, listen, you know, I wish we were perfect. That's, that's just not the case. You know, we're really going to do our best to always listen to your complaints and your feedback. And for me, that was a really big growing moment that took place last week and is still continuing now. You know, it's, you really need to put faith in your audience that they have your best interests in mind in mass. They want to be a part of this game for a long time. They want the project to be successful. Everyone's going to have different opinions on how that works, but listening to community and actually striving to find a balance between some of the external factors, maybe they don't know about in terms of, you know, how many staff is this going to take to get a PVP game up and running in July? You know, what is the current obligations that we've got? And so getting this kind of balance of, we hear you, we feel you, this is what we think is going to be the best solution, both internally and externally. And so we did that mint revisement. Things have gone really, really well since then. And, and everybody's been, for the most part, has been pretty thankful about making those changes. And that was just a big learning moment for me that if we're going to build this for the community, you know, we have to have them in these early stage decisions. And so that's what I would say is, is such a, an important element of particularly a game and a lot of these projects is sometimes the community is going to know what's best for you without knowing it. And you really have to put faith in them and listen to all of their opinions, complaints, concerns on that, because you're going to find diamonds in the rough in terms of ideas and ways to push the game forward that you may not have thought of. That's a really great point. And it's hard with the market being so volatile and yes. you not really knowing what the value of Solana is going to be. And at the end of the day, people say one soul equals one soul, but really it doesn't. Really, they're comparing it no. to, <laughs> to US dollars or whatever their local fiat currency is. And kind of on a similar note of finances, but sort of on the flip side, there's a real lack of transparency around payment and compensation in the Web3 space. And there's really no industry standard because we're defining that at the moment 
around how much should somebody be paid in a community manager role or in a developer role? Does that depend, right? And then there are also roles that are brand new and people could be providing value in ways that you wouldn't have ever expected or maybe didn't scope out at first. So how does your team approach payment and figuring out what a fair price is for the different roles and responsibilities? That's a great question. And you know, the, the thing that makes it difficult is one of the beauties of this space is decentralization. You know, obviously somebody doing a role in 30 different countries might warrant 30 different pay rates. And so it's been an interesting balance so far. I think one thing for us is, you know, we obviously put up the funding ourselves, you know, as other three founders of Meta Mountain. So we've all had experience in traditional business. So, you know, for us, all of our employees are paid at very fair wages and very livable rates, because to us, it's like the cost of losing that person to another job because it pays more vastly exceeds any difference in salary there. So that's one really big piece to me. I learned that in the staffing realm is what's the cost of not having this person. And that cost is exceptionally high. In some cases, it's 30 to 50% of the annual salary of that individual. So that's a risk that we don't even want to toe the line near of potentially losing them. And then another piece of it is this is something that I learned in the early days of startup. You know, you're taking a risk to join a small company. It's going to be much more volatile than a large one. What's the upside of that? And for us, the upside of that, in my case, at least when I was working at a startup was I would like to see a vested interest in this business. I would like to be incentivized to make this business successful long-term. And so for us right now, we're in the process of setting up not only token allocations to individuals, but equity allocations as well for folks on the team. I have no doubt that if somebody is given a piece of that pie, you know, they're going to do everything they can to make sure that it's cooked right. And so I think that's a really important piece is to utilize bonuses, utilize thresholds to reward people and incentivize them in the right way. I know incentives can be difficult for employees. They're great, but a lot of times when you're building a system for a business, sometimes if your incentive is done improperly, you're incentivizing someone to go against that system. And so that was also something that I learned in the cannabis world. And so finding this happy medium between incentivizing them in a variety of different ways and paying them something that is above market rate for what they would get to go to the project next door. Those are two very, very important principles that we have and something that we can, you know, continue to strive and live by. And I'd rather have a company that everybody owns a slice of than a company that, that I or Meta Mountain has a hundred percent of, you know, if there's no incentive for these folks to make this project as great as it can be, then they're going to end up leaving and we're going to have to backfill them. And it's going to be a total mess drain on our resources and just bad business overall. So for us, it's incentives across performance. It's incentives across tokens incentives across equity, uh, and then a wage that makes them hopefully remove the other concerns they have in their life. You know, you don't want to have a job where you're thinking, am I going to be able to pay this bill? Am I going to be able to pay that bill? And so if you can remove those concerns and allow them to really explore their passion in your project. I mean, sky's the limit. Absolutely. And I think just given your your background experience in this space, I'd be really interested to hear from you, somebody who maybe is brand new in this space, or maybe has been in this space mm -hmm. as an investor and wants to start a project or wants to get yes. more involved. Like, What is your biggest piece of advice that you would sort of give somebody, whether they're looking to transition into a full-time career in Web3 or even just do something part-time? Yeah, I mean, everything to me, and this is maybe the economic brain I live in a little bit, it's it's this calculation that you have to make. You know, if you're sitting there with a job offer to get into Web3 and it's lower than a job offer, let's say, to stay in whatever traditional industry you're in, you know, you have to make that decision. Do you see not only the future of the space being great, where you can get the experience in a space that not a lot of people have experience in? You know, what's the value of that to you? A layer above that is what's the value of working with this particular project? What do you see as the future of this particular project? Do you trust the team at the top? If you're able to 
to trust those folks and they're able to lay out a way for you to be incentivized and rewarded for your hard work going forward. That's a fantastic method. If a company checks those three boxes, there's a lot of intangibles there that would beat out, you know, whatever the numbers salary difference is going into the traditional world. So those are things that you really should look out for in that interviewing process. Really focus on asking those founders or whatever potential job you're, you're looking at those kinds of questions. It depends on also the scale you're starting out on. You know, if you, let's say, are a graphic designer and you want to try what it's like in the industry, partner with a project. And, you know, maybe if it's not the project that you see long-term, but they want a couple hours a week to do a graphic or two, and they'll pay you a fair rate comparable to what you would have made in the traditional spaces, the traditional business, go off and do that as experience. You're going to sacrifice a couple hours a week, but that's your, your opportunity cost is you're now getting experience in partnering with a variety of projects or a project that'll give you the launch pad or, or, or the area to expand on that. And it could even give you the contacts to move into another project or space. So to me, it's all this calculation of what's their request? How much do I want to be in this space? And do I have faith in what this experience or this company will provide to me long-term? If you're able to make those calculations and, and do it right. And you know, obviously it'd be great if we could all hit the nail on the head every time. I think we've all been in tough jobs or positions before that weren't all it was chalked up to be. But that experience is something that's going to be really, really important. If you tried to find somebody with a decade of blockchain experience, you know, you're looking at Satoshi Nakamoto and like two people. So, you know, if you're able to get in now and get that experience at an early stage, it's going to be really valuable for you going forward. 100% agree. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Botanist, for joining us. Your advice and your perspective has just been like super, super insightful. And it was really awesome getting to hear about Meta Mountain, Meta Wana, and really how your team is looking to provide value and better the, the ecosystem in Web3 at a broader scale than maybe you guys even originally planned. Like you have some awesome things in the works and I'm really excited to see where you guys go with this. We really appreciate your time and thank you for joining us today. Awesome. Aurora, Nolan, thank you guys so much. Shameless quick plug here. Um, we are constantly hiring here. So if you have any interest in joining the team, you know, we're looking for everything from graphic designers to partnership folks to community members to blockchain scholars who can research other projects. So there's a lot of awesome opportunity here. And I, I would love to, to speak with anybody who's got interest in either learning a little more about the space or has an interest in coming online. So join the Metawana Discord and uh, we look forward to anybody who wants to mint with us on April 14th on Frack. And that is everything we had for you today, guys. Make sure to go follow The Botanist on Twitter. That's at xbotanistx. Also, go ahead and follow at Game. If you want to catch us on social, it's at web3connectx. If you'd like to hear somebody on the podcast next, go hit us up over on Discord and let us know who, and we will try our best to get them on the pod for you. But otherwise, we'll see you next time.